when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The Johnson government opted not to strengthen coronavirus restrictions this week. Despite concerns from health leaders, the NHS will face too much pressure this winter. We're looking closely at the data and we won't be implementing our plan B of contingency measures at this point. But we'll be staying vigilant, preparing for all eventualities, while strengthening our vital defences. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your central guide to what's going on in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the return of COVID to the news agenda and ask, with infections and hospital admissions rising rapidly, will the government implement its so-called Plan B of measures, as you heard the Health Secretary Sajid Javid discuss at the top. Political editor George Parker will analyse, along with our health and science reporter Oliver Barnes. And later, we'll be remembering Sir David Amos, the veteran Conservative who was killed in his Essex constituency last Friday, and examine what needs to be done to improve the security of MPs. Mark Francois, the Conservative MP and long-standing friend of Sir David, will discuss, along with Rosie Duffield, the Labour MP for Canterbury. With plenty on the agenda, let's move straight into our main topic. Life has almost returned back to normal in the UK in recent months, as all the COVID restrictions have fallen away, masks have been dropped, and behaviour has mostly reverted to normal. But that doesn't mean the pandemic is over, and the winter crunch which we've been expecting is now with us. Health leaders were alert to the dangers the health service faces, and think that further restrictions such as face masks and working from home should return. Matthew Taylor of the NHS Confederation, which represents healthcare bodies, has argued more restrictions are needed immediately, as he told the BBC. But that is the system working uh, flat out. And winter uh, is coming. Those winter pressures will grow. So, you know, one of the consequences of not taking action is that we will, it'll be very difficult to make any progress at all for those people who've been waiting, some of them now waiting for a, a very long time for treatment. Oliver Barnes, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Can you begin just by setting out the situation as it is, that this week we've seen cases and infections increasing, we've seen hospital admissions rising, but we always knew this was going to happen? The marker that the government has set for moving to plan B is this question of unsustainable pressure on the NHS. Of course, we're all asking is what unsustainable pressure quite means. The numbers, though, are definitely heading in the wrong direction. So on Thursday, we saw over 50,000 cases in one day for the first time since the July spike caused by the Euros football tournament. There are over 8,000 people in hospital. That's the highest number for over a month. And earlier this week, deaths topped out at around 220 in a single day. That's the highest figure in seven months. So what this means for the government is not that things 
will necessarily continue to get worse for two, three, four more weeks time. But it presents the possibility that they could continue to get worse. And that may mean more pressure about activating Plan B measures. Oh, George Parker, obviously the government dropped all coronavirus restrictions when it went to step four at the end of July. And this marked us out from other European countries, many of whom have had a vaccine passports to go into pubs, restaurants and big venues. They've also kept more face masks where they're just recommended. They're not mandatory at the moment within the UK. And they've also continued to work from home in a way we're not here. And I think many people were sort of baffled by this. And there seems to be a big dose of conservative ideology here that when you listen to Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid and other ministers, they talk about personal responsibility and freedom. And I guess that was still the same message we received this week. Yes, and it's interesting you made that international comparison, actually, because Mario Draghi, the Italian prime minister, was addressing his parliament this week. And he said the Italians wouldn't make the same mistake as was was being made in the UK of having one big bang relaxation of restrictions, as you mentioned, back in July. And certainly that date, I think it was July the 19th, um, was accompanied by all kinds of rhetoric and newspaper headlines from Tory sporting newspapers about Freedom Day. And it's quite striking this week, Sajid Javid saying, you know, change your behaviour or you could lose some of your freedoms, which really annoyed many on the right, the idea that the government can give and take freedoms. But yes, I mean, you're right. There has been a certain amount of ideology in it. And there's also a certain amount of economics in it as well, that the government was very keen just to get the country back to normal. And to be fair to Boris Johnson, when the restrictions were lifted back in July, we had a load of modellers, including Neil Ferguson of Imperial College, saying it was inevitable that uh, cases would rise to 100,000 and probably go up to 200,000, instead of which they bumped along at around 30,000 for several months. So we have to be honest about this. We're not entirely sure what the trajectory of the virus is now or where it's going to go next. And Boris Johnson might say that the gamble was justified. But nevertheless, we're now in a pretty sticky situation. And the messaging of the government has changed absolutely on its head in the space of a few days. Now, Oliver, this question of unsustainable pressure. Now, when this was raised at the Downing Street press conference this week, which was the first COVID press conference we've had in uh, five weeks, I think, and it was a very stark reminder where we're at. And you look at some of the data and you can see deaths over the past seven days are up about 11 percent. Positive cases are up about 18% and patients missed to hospital are up 15%. And it's the last metric that seems to be the most crucial one, because if you get too many people going into hospital, that creates the unsustainable pressure. But I think it was Stephen Powers, who's the medical director for NHS England. He said at the press conference this week that there is not one single metric. So how is the government going to measure if we need more restrictions? Well, in fairness to to Neil Ferguson, actually, the prediction that George mentioned, along with that 100,000 cases prediction, he also predicted 1,000 hospitalizations a day and 100 deaths a day. And those two have both happened. I mean, we're at over 100 deaths a day and we're at nearly 1,000 hospitalizations a day. And it's that figure, the hospital pressure, which, as you say, is the most important. Before the vaccination campaign, the question of whether to impose restrictions or not was based on if infections are rising, there's no way of stopping them rising. Now we have this wall of immunity. And in a sense, the kind of deliberation the government is making is, will the immunity wall kick in before hospital pressures get too much and people have to be start and the waiting list continue to have to grow and elective surgery has to be cancelled? And at the moment, clearly the calculation is, 
the, the COVID numbers aren't increasing at a level that's unsustainable. But if that kind of 950 hospitalizations that are happening every day and 8,000 coronavirus patients who are in hospital at the moment increases, you know, by, for instance, 50 percent, does that then become unsustainable? And I think that's where we get into a slightly more kind of troubling territory for the government. And that when you talk about that wall of immunity, Oliver, is, you know, I don't want to utter the dreaded words herd immunity, which everyone sort of talks about. But is that really what we're talking about here? Because eventually, you know, the virus will hit that wall, you would think, and there won't be anywhere else for it left to go. Do you, And do you think that's likely that will happen before you hit that unsustainable point? Well, herd immunity is like a two-pronged concept. It's like how many non-susceptible and susceptible people you have in the population. So how many people who are protected from getting the virus. But then also it's dependent on the levels at which we're mixing. And I suppose the government's plan at the moment is not a legislative approach, but a kind of individual behavioural approach, which is that within plan A, if things start to get worse perhaps people will take more kind of individual measures, i.e. masking, some social distancing, being cautious, and therefore they won't need to implement extra kind of legislative measures to turn the corner on infections and and hospitalizations. Now, George, there is, of course, this question about whether Plan B will ever actually be implemented. And the people that you and I have spoken to this week essentially say that Boris Johnson will not do another lockdown, even though you have to think that's still always in the back pocket of the government if things did get really quite bad. But Plan B is on the cards, I think it's fair to say. And people I've spoken to in Whitehall suggest that nothing's likely to happen before the COP26 climate summit, not least because capacity of government is completely full up. But as Oliver reported this week, you have half term, which gives the health service a bit of a break um, from those break outbreaks of COVID infections in schools, but then also more time to get the boosters going. So really, we're talking mid-November and you have to ask yourself, if you're going to start implementing these measures by mid-November, isn't that a bit late? Because you're going to be, will be knee deep in the middle of winter by then. Certainly argue that. And that certainly be the case being made by people like Matthew Taylor, the NHS Confederation, that you've got to get in early. And um, think back to uh, September when the government set out its winter plan, Patrick Valance, the chief scientific advisor, saying, you know, if there looks like a rise in cases, go hard, go early. That's the lesson that we learned through the pandemic. And it's a lesson the government seems to have either forgotten or is neglecting to apply. Though it's significant that Downing Street said that Patrick Valance hasn't so far formally requested move to plan B. But certainly they're putting a lot of hope on two things. As you mentioned, the, the start of the school half term for most English schools, which started on Friday. Uh, and then this big advertising campaign to try and get people to go out and get their booster shots. But, you know, you have to make the point that what's the government been doing for the last five weeks? There's been no public messaging to speak of at all about the booster campaign. We've got a new vaccines minister, Maggie Throop, who's conveniently, I've got a Wikipedia tab open on my computer, Seb, to tell me who she is. She's made no national media appearances since she was appointed in a reshuffle in the last five weeks. There's been no a government press conference on the booster campaign, as you mentioned, for the last five weeks. So they've been sort of caught napping on that front. Are we going to see them having to implement Plan B? Look, I mean, all the lessons we've learned from this pandemic is the government says they're not going to have to do things they're hoping they won't have to. The rhetoric subtly shifts about keeping all options on the table and monitoring the data on a daily basis, and then you're into it. So the question, I think, is, will the government pay a political price for that, as well as potentially a human price as well? Because if um, They're being warned by NHS leaders they should be doing this now. They don't act. And then we have some sort of hospital crisis. There's quite a big price to pay politically as well as um, from a human life uh, point of view as well. 
And on this booster campaign, Oliver, it is extraordinary, as George says, that Maggie Thupu was appointed to replace Nadim Zahawi in the reshuffle in September. I think it's the IPAP report this week. She's not on a single media appearance since she took over that job. And if we think about earlier this year when Mr Zahawi was the vaccines minister, now you couldn't get him off TV. And he was there the whole time telling people to go out, get jabbed. Um, and that was part of a big government push. And the booster campaign seems to be very low key in comparison why do you think that is? And going back to your earlier point about this wall of immunity, how important is the booster campaign for that? The booster campaign, the, the eligibility criteria are based on six months after your second dose. So the reason it's been low key to some degree is there haven't been that many people eligible until the past few weeks. There have been around 4 million boosters given out in England. About 1.5 million people are eligible but haven't received them. And I think it's that category that the government will be thinking about. How do you convince those people they need to get their booster urgently? And how do you make sure you have the kind of supply of vaccinators and vaccination centres to make that convenient? On the point of the kind of herd immunity question and whether boosters alone can lead to a, a peak in infections in the next week or two, there are some positive signs that the, you know all age groups are growing at the moment in terms of infections. But the over 80s that have booster coverage in excess of 50% are growing slower than the other age categories, which might be early suggestions. And I've had this said to me by Neil Ferguson and John Edmonds, two of the key modelers on uh, SPY-M, that that could be early signs of a booster effect. And earlier in the week, we had very promising trial data from Pfizer, which compared boosted individuals, so people who'd got two doses and then a third dose, and people who got two doses and a placebo. And the boosted group was 95% more protected than the non-boosted group against symptomatic infection. So the government's hope is that that will start to bear down on the, uh, on the COVID numbers basically as soon as possible and turn the corner on infections. Now, George, there's obviously, of course, this issue of behaviour. So we've mentioned the boosters and the other message from Sajid Javid this week is say to people, you need to act more cautiously. So we've obviously seen lots of scenes in the months of uh, lots of parties, lots of big gatherings, not least the party conferences where you and I were at. And I think we were both quite taken aback at the lack of mass in any situation. And mass are a funny one because just hours before that press conference, the House of Commons was packed. Tories were in there cheek by jowl, not a single person wearing a mask. And this is something that I actually asked Sajid Javid at, at the press conference, and he gave this slightly odd answer. We also have a role uh, to play and set an example as, as, as private individuals uh, as well. I, I think that's a very fair point, and I'm sure a lot of people would have heard you. Well, he is the health secretary, so I don't know why he's saying it's a fair point. A lot of people would have heard, George, because you'd think that's exactly what his job to do is to tell colleagues they should be doing this. Yes, I think there were some raised eyebrows when Sajid Javid said that in response to your question, Seb, um, in number 10. I think they thought that maybe he'd, done, he'd gone a bit too far. And it's obviously caused a lot of discomfort among Conservative MPs, many of whom don't like wearing masks on a point of principle. It was interesting the following day, Boris Johnson was seen wearing a mask at Armagh Cathedral. He went there for a commemoration service in Northern Ireland's centenary event. And about 50% of Tory MPs the next day I counted in the chamber were wearing masks, which was sort of quite a big increase on the previous day. But it's, it's a really difficult situation the government's put itself in now, thanks to Sajid Javid telling people that they should take personal responsibility, wear masks in crowded places where they're mixing with people they don't normally mix with. Because, you know, it's a terrible look, as we all know, politicians saying one thing and doing something else. 
And it leaves a load of people, Conservative MPs in particular, open to accusations that the government's acting in a hypocritical way. And that's the one thing I think that from this pandemic that we've learned above all else is the public really hate it when they're being told to do one thing by politicians and the politicians do something else. So I think there's a lot, lot of trouble ahead uh, for the Conservative Party on that front. And finally, Oliver, we haven't heard from Patrick Valance or Chris Whitty this week, the Chief Scientific and Medical Officers for England as well. What's the formal process where this goes now? You know, so let's say things do keep continuing to rise. Maybe they, you know, it'd be great, obviously, if they do start to level off and we don't need those plan B measures. But what's the kind of formal mechanism here? Or is it entirely up to ministers to make that decision about whether we move to plan B? It is ultimately up to ministers. Sajid Javid said a few months ago, you know, I can take Sage's advice or I can ignore it. The kind of mechanism basically works from Sage and SPYM are going to produce modelling that's due around now, basically. That would have been shown to ministers and shown to also the CMO and, and Patrick Valence, the chief science advisor. They'll kind of digest that and look at the possibilities of the next few months. And ultimately, it's it's going to be a calculation of whether the restrictions are necessary to be introduced to restrain COVID, how flu pans out when we start to see more flu infections and the pressures that puts on the NHS. And then also all the other things the NHS has to deal with in terms of emergency care and the and the pressures it faces over a normal winter. But one would expect there are conversations taking place, you know, between the government office for science, between the CMO's office and ministers about this. And if the point comes where, and, and, and in the past, uh, Chris Whitty has pushed for restrictions and then ministers have, have listened, I'm sure he'll, he'll make that, that point clearly. And just finally, George, it is interesting, though, that the political balance on this has changed in government, that obviously we know Boris Johnson's always been very sceptical of lockdowns and COVID restrictions. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has been too. And the the biggest voices who are the hawks, if you like, were the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, and the Cabinet Office Minister, Michael Gove. And they've now both moved positions that you've got. Uh, Michael Gove's obviously now the levelling up secretary, not involved in COVID meetings. And Matt Hancock's been replaced by Sanjay Javits. So I do wonder, even if things do get bad and, you know, the data doesn't improve, whether actually they will ever go ahead with Plan B or even Plan C if one is needed. Hmm. Well, it's a very good point, And the balance has changed in the cabinet. But I think there's a another crude political calculation to be made here, which is that, you know, at this time of year, it's it's commonplace for people in the NHS to say the system's under huge pressure and we're facing a winter crisis. I think it happens almost every year that I can remember. But this year, of course, you can stir in COVID and the possibility we have a worse flu season than normal because of the lockdown last year. If those things come together and politicians are being warned that they should be going to plan B now and they don't, and things get worse on the ground in the hospitals and you start to see queues building up and people not being able to get treatment, then whatever the political balance is inside the cabinet and whatever the ideological views and the desire to keep things on the straight and narrow and you know put the economy first and all the rest of it, all those things I suspect are swept away by the crude political calculation that you can't be seen seen to be on the wrong side of public opinion on health matters. Well, I somehow don't think this is going to be the last time in the coming weeks we will be talking about coronavirus. George and Oliver, thank you very much. Last Friday, Sir David Amos did what MPs do every week, go back to their constituencies and speak to their voters. At lunchtime, he was stabbed multiple times and later died at the scene. Ali Haribi Ali, a 25-year-old British man of Somali descent, has been charged with murder that prosecutors said had terrorist intent. Westminster has been in deep shock all week, 
both at the loss of one of the chamber's most respected, well-liked figures, but also about growing concerns about their own safety. Boris Johnson led the tribute to Sir David in the House of Commons on Monday. That Sir David spent almost 40 years in this house, but not one day in ministerial office, tells everything about where his priorities lay. He was not a man in awe of this chamber, nor a man who sought uh, patronage or advancement. He simply wanted to serve the people of Essex. Mark Francois, thank you very much for joining the podcast. It's great to have you on. I was incredibly moved by your tribute to Sir David in the House of Commons this week. What are your recollections of someone who was a very good friend to you and someone who was, I think, as devoted as Essex as you are? I hope collectively we did him justice. And, you know, if you're going to talk about Sir David, there had been humour. There were lots of using anecdotes about his life. By the end, it sort of turned into a celebration of his life you know, not a dirge. And I, and I think and hope that's what David himself wanted. So I think between us as MPs, I hope we did our great for justice. Well, I think you did, Mark. And I think it spoke to what a respected figure he was, but also just how devoted he was to his constituency, that political journalists like me are often far too focused on ministers, some of the bigger figures in the political debate. And you forget there are hundreds of backbench MPs like Sir David Ames, who was devoted to the people that elected them and their town. And since the tragic events of last Friday, we've seen that his great campaign to make South Anansi a city has come to fruition. I think it was very fitting that the that the Prime Minister paid tribute from the dispatch box. And in fairness, you know, I've not always been Sakir Star's greatest fan, but I thought his tribute was equally eloquent to that of the Prime Minister, and they sort of set the tone. So South End now be a city forever. You know, in any ways that is a fitting tribute to one of its greatest champions. Now, the events of last Friday have brought into very stark contrast the threats that MPs receive every day. And Mark, you talked about this dispatch box. I'd like to be in Rosie Duffield. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Hi, and sir. I know you've spoken in public about this as well, that you've received some mm-hmm. most appalling threats, including death threats to your life as well as MPs. Now, you've been an MP for not as long as Mark has, but no. there has been a lot of scrutiny of the general debate an atmosphere at the moment. Um, do you think this is going to be a moment where things change following the events last week? I'd love to think so. And I think, uh, first of all, I want to pay tribute to Sir David because he was one of the nicest people in the whole of the parliamentary estate and nobody has ever, you know, nobody has said a bad word about him and he's going to be so missed and all of us were lining up to to speak about him. If we'd had more than two hours, I would imagine that most members of parliament would have said something lovely. And one thing that I'll never forget is that when I made speeches, particularly difficult ones, David would always handwrite a letter saying that I'd done well or something supportive and I will miss that, you know, I'll miss him. And Mark's tribute was extremely moving. Among some of his closest friends, he was known affectionately as the late Sir David Ames. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now he really is the late Sir David Ames, isn't he? But I am absolutely determined, and I ask for your support in this, that he will not have died in vain. He's now resting. In the arms of the God he worshipped so devotedly his whole life. So farewell, David. 
my colleague, my great friend. In fact, quite simply, the best bloke I ever knew. And I think everyone in the house was is, has been so upset this week, and the atmosphere is, is is kind of difficult. But you know, I hope it does lead to people thinking a bit more about the kind of abuse that we all get. You know, we're we're simply trying to do our jobs, and if you don't like us, vote for someone else. But you don't have to constantly abuse us online, send us threats. You know. It, haters in public you know if you don't like us put your cross in a different box it's as simple as that and i think one of the things that's obviously we can't forget is that we obviously sir david was killed last friday but also joe cox was killed in 2016 Mm. at her constituency surgery people have raised questions mark this week is this the end of constituency surgeries as we know them are they still a safe thing to do one way or another It's very important that we can continue to hold surgeries with our constituents, whether we do it physically or virtually or by phone or however. It's very important because that is a fundamental link in the British system between the constituent and the MP, the person, as Rose was alluding to, they democratically choose peacefully in a secret ballot to send to the House of Commons representative, their member of parliament. And... If we allow ourselves to retreat to ivory towers, then the bad guys are winning, aren't they? Because they want to separate from our constituents. They want to drive a wedge between us and the people we represent. So somehow we've got to find a balance so that we deal safely but effectively with our constituents. Because if we retreat by barbed wire walls, the bad guys are winning. Are winning. And one thing I can do at the risk of presumptuously speaking to my friend, that is the last thing he would ever have wanted. And Rosie, how do you feel about that? Because as I said, you've also faced threats as well. And it was reported mm. that you did not go to the Labour Party conference this year, again, having faced, you know, being advised not to. How do you think we can strike the right balance to make sure MPs are available to do their jobs while also being safe? It's a really tricky one. I agree with Mark that we cannot let these people win. But at the same time, our families are really concerned. And I wasn't going to say anything to my children, but they'd obviously seen in the news what would happen on Friday and were sending me kind of screenshots of, of the news that they'd seen. And I didn't know what to say to them. And, you know, so you have a commitment and a, a responsibility to your family, but also, you know, you want to meet those constituents who have every right to come and talk to you. So, you know, I, I think in any other country, if we were looking at, the story of MPs murdered doing their jobs, we'd call it an assassination. But in this country, we're so used to British values and just sort of getting on with things. We, we just we don't look at it quite in the same way. But I think we are going to have to look at our security, particularly women on our own, I'm afraid. And, you know, it, it is an issue just walking around. Sometimes you do feel a bit frightened and we shouldn't have to feel like that. But I'm not going to stop doing my surgeries. Not quite sure yet what adjustments I'm going to make but um, I certainly won't stop doing that and won't stop appearances and there is apart from all the sorrow this week in parliament I think there is a bit of defiance I think we're all feeling a bit we are absolutely not going to be stopped quite angry angry that our friend was taken from us but but angry at the idea that we're just going to go quietly into a kind of cave and not not go out fighting and we are going to do our jobs we're going to carry on doing it. And Mark, on that point, you know, the thing is, obviously, MPs in the Palace of Westminster are very heavily protected with armed guards and constituency officers. And I think the private homes of MPs have 
national security in recent years. You know, I've spoken to a lot of MPs on from all parties this week, and they do feel that the, the most vulnerable is when they're just out on their own. So, you know, there, I'm sure this question of full time protection is going to be raised. But as you said, that does risk driving a wedge there. Do you have anything in particular you think should be changed in this review? No, you talk to a lot of politicians in your job and you're good at it. You know, just ask them what's the first experience they've had. Just ask them what's the vilest thing they've ever had online. You know, I did an interview with Nick Ferrari and I made the same suggestion. He had Amory Trevelyan on an hour later. What's the worst thing you've ever had? She said, I've posted on social media. They'd like me to be trapped in my house with children to see it burned down. Now, as Rosie said, if you don't like your MP, vote for someone else. It's called democracy. If you, you, know, you employ them to represent you, if you think they're not doing a good job, you could employ someone else. Doesn't mean you have to threaten to burn them to death. The children do it. I hope we do not get to the point where members of parliament have to walk around their own constituencies in stab vests. But it would help if we didn't have so much violence online, such that, you know, which most legitimises MPs as targets in the mind of some people. That we could change if yeah. produced. And finally, Rosie, I sort of think this is the point, and Mark made this point in Parliament this week, that obviously there is so much abuse online. It's not just MPs that receive it, it's their staff as well. And, yeah. you know, people in the media, we get our fair share, but, you know, mm. it, I think it's a slightly different level of what MPs do get here. And it is a difficult question because I know Mark's proposed idea of banning anonymity online, and I think the upcoming online, mm. online safety bill is going to have a look at this. But, you know... What can we do generally to try and tone down our political debate? Because in my 10 years of reporting on British politics, it definitely has got worse. And people do seem to feel as if MPs are not human in some respect. And I think that is yeah. a problem. And until we fix that, it is going to mean this toxic atmosphere. You've both made really good points there. I was with the women's press lobby the other night. We were just sort of meeting up for the first time in person for a couple of years. And, you know, people like Laura Kunzberg have had an incredible amount of abuse online, and actually in person sometimes too. You know, it, it feels like all public figures are kind of slightly out there, but particularly anyone involved in politics, reporting politics even. And, and why is that? Why are people so angry and hostile? I think social media kind of, you know, gives you a free reign to speak in a way that you wouldn't otherwise but but now if people are taking that on you know into real life you know I'm supposed to sort of tell the police where I am and where I'm going and all that kind of stuff all the time and you do think to yourself well now it's kind of eight o'clock at night and I'm off duty does that mean I'm kind of okay or am I fair game and you know you have to think about every single place you go and what you do and how you get home and if one thing in that sort of plan goes slightly wrong you can't get a taxi or it's a bit late and you're waiting outside it really does start your heart racing you really start getting a bit panicky and you have to whatsapp your team where you are but but you mentioned our teams and they do read the horrible emails first often I'm afraid and sometimes they send them straight to the police without without telling us. But that's not great for them. You know, they didn't come into this job to do that. They came to this job to help people like we did. Mark and Rosie, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you receive your podcasts to have episodes as soon as they're released. We also do like positive reviews and nice ratings. 
Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers were Breen Turner and Sean McGarrity. Until next week, thank you for listening. How does appreciation feel to you? A rising rush of warmth? A building wave of confidence? At Reward Gateway Edenred, we know appreciation appreciates in value. Starting with people, radiating through companies to transform their performance and productivity. Capture the power of appreciation with our total employee experience platform. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.